have no association with one another. Outside of any, anything that the world has to offer, Lord, you unite us above all. We thank you for the life that we have, that we have in Christ. We pray for our church, Lord, because a church is not a building. A church is not a location. A church is people. Every single one of us. Every single person who not only claims to follow you, but also who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and gifted to serve the local church is as vitally as important as every other body, as every other member of the body. Lord, I pray that this morning we would lift up our pastor, that we lift up others within our church who are experiencing difficult things and situations and surgeries and ailments, brokenness, being disheartened, people who are celebrating, all of these things go into life. Lord, thank you that your word teaches us. Thank you that your word displays clearly the human experience. Lord, if no other place, the book of Psalms is the, the pinnacle of our human experience, but all of that falls into your authority. So, Lord, we do want to pray this morning, God, that you would be glorified in the lives of people. Pray that you would be glorified in this message as you are glorified in the singing of your praises just now. Lord, I pray that you would sharpen our minds and our hearts this morning as we dive into your word to set our heart's affection and our mind's attention upon you. Lord, I thank you for the life that we have, for the life that you've given to us. And it's in your son's name that we pray this. And all God's people said, amen. Back to Titus chapter one. Last week we spent some time laying some ground, laying some ground for the book of Titus, answering some of the important questions about what this letter is all about, understanding from Paul's perspective as well as as we get into it, we're going to hear now from Titus's how he would have heard it when received it. Title of this message this morning, last week was merely introduction. We looked at just one verse, kind of the the pinnacle. The obviously, when you start a letter, what you want to start it with is is pretty important. That's why the book, the the entire Bible itself, starts with the book of Genesis. If you're going to start someplace reading in the in the Bible. Genesis is a great place to start because it's there for a reason. It's about the beginnings, about all the things. It helps us lay a groundwork as well for what Scripture is all about. It's about God, His sovereign plan, His desire to create, and His desire to glorify Himself through His creation. But as we look at Titus and we understand some of the things that go into uh, the passage that we'll read today, we have, to, we have to state that the title of the message is what a pastor must be. We're going to get to, in a moment, some of the qualifications. We're going to pick up from where we were last week and even in read verse 1 as well just to kind of help us keep in context and keep in mind what's going on here. 
This is what a pastor must be. The importance there is the, the phrase must. It's not should. It's not needs to. Because those two words imply preference, opinion. This is what a pastor must be. There is no other qualifications for those who hold the office of pastor. And we're going to make some also practical application to those who are called to be pastors. If you are in here and you're called to be a pastor, if you're called to pursue ministry in some way, but we're also going to look at how does this apply to believers, to members of the church. Because I know many of us, it might be our inclination to simply sit back and think, this is about pastors, Uh, I'm out. If nothing else, this is what the church needs to affirm, must affirm, not needs to, not should, must affirm for those who hold the title of pastor and elder. Because as we'll see here in a moment, the leadership of local churches will set the tone for leaders within the local body as members. Every Christian is a leader in some way, shape, or form regardless of title or vocation. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9, but I want you to keep in mind some of the things that I mentioned last week when it comes to the marks of a corrupt culture, that correction is considered condemnation. We need to address that. We need to understand that, that correction is not simply rebuke. Scripture says very clearly, 2 Timothy, same person writing to a different, different pastor, 1st, 2nd, Timothy and Titus are the three letters known as the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. But Paul also says that Scripture in in 2 Timothy 3.16 is profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, and for correction. If it was only for rebuking, we would never know truly how to live. If Scripture was only for calling out the wrong things that we do, how many of us would be discouraged enough to live under that? Scripture is not just for the rebuking, it's also for the correcting. It's not just telling you where you're going wrong, it's also showing you what to do right. Correction is not condemnation. Corrupt culture also preaches tolerance by demanding silence of those who are not preaching what they prefer. Truth is considered a personal attack in a a corrupt culture, and fairness reigns supreme. Not truth, not justice. As we saw last week, we don't want fair. We want justice. We want things to be just. But in order to understand and to push and to proclaim justice, we have to first ask the question, what is the standard of justice? And we need not look any further than Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The creator is just. So as we get into Titus, last week we, I, I mentioned the, the quote from a lady named Jen Wilkin that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Dr. John MacArthur said something very similar in that the heart can only go as high in worship as it can go deep in theology. What I hope you don't hear from this message is that doctrine and theology are for those who have attended some level of educational institution. That is not the case. In fact, practical theology and doctrine we first see within the New Testament church is when Jesus chose the losers of society, the outcasts, 
Though none of us in this room would have made the cut to be one of Jesus' disciples, we're all too educated. They were task-oriented individuals who didn't qualify to go on to rabbinic school. And yet Jesus grabs these people out of their lives, completely alters their identity because he can, because he's the God who created them in the first place. And he began to walk with them and to show them what practical theology and doctrine really looks like in its godly living. The importance of practical doctrine and theology is not mainly for the academic or intellectuals, although that is in a general sense what people think of. Because the church has not done a very great job of being able to separate humility from education. But we're going to see here in a moment that that's exactly what Titus needs to hear. That's exactly what Paul is addressing to Titus himself. Not only this is how you should structure the church according to God's intended plan and purpose, but anybody within this church, especially within the leadership of the church, needs to adhere to the right qualifications of leadership one and first and foremost being above, reach, above reproach and humble. Why is this important? Because all that God is and all that he does are extensions and expressions of his holiness. Think about it. There is no other place that you see a Trinitarian characteristic of God being echoed in Old Testament and a New Testament other than what? Holy, holy, holy. Not loving, loving, loving. Not gracious, 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 just, 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 righteous, 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 and so on. All the different characteristics that we can think and ascribe to God as he has shown us. The Trinitarian formula for God's proclamation is that he is holy, holy, holy. Everything that he does, his love is holy, his justice is holy, his graciousness is holy, his righteousness is holy. He is entirely, as the word implies and the word is translated, entirely separate. In fact, in Revelation chapter 4, where we see one of the, 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 one of the two Trinitarian echoes of his attributes of holiness, it says that the creatures who are in his presence constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, day after day, moment after moment, they have to cover themselves in this very strange fashion, in, in, the, in a way that none of us have ever seen a true angel in fact, the angels that we see in the, uh, the, the Christmas narrative are very much different than what the way that the angels in Scripture are actually depicted. But they have these wings that are covering their faces and their bodies and their feet. Why? Because the holiness of God is unapproachable. It's unapproachable to the heavenly creatures that dwell in his presence because if they were to gaze upon his holiness, they would be consumed by it. And yet through Christ, through the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, we are graciously called and equipped to carry this holiness with us in every area of our lives. And that's the purpose. That's the purpose of every believer to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's being able to in, embrace this idea of right doctrine. Biblical theology and accurate interpretation have to be the goal because what is the goal within the life of a believer? 
The goal is holiness. God said, be holy as I am holy. Pursue holiness. Not happiness. Not whatever you delight in. Pursue holiness. Another quote before we get to the text from Robert Murray McShane. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Now I want you to consider that statement as we go through these qualifications, go through these texts. And I want you to think about that from yourself. He was talking, first and foremost, primarily to pastors and church leaders. But again, every Christian is a leader in some way, shape, or form. So your people's greatest need, your family, your co-workers, your kids or grandkids, your neighbor's greatest need is your personal holiness. That is not a statement of arrogance in, in, to say that everything about what Scripture talks about with regards to Christ, it's not diminishing that. It's saying, are you living it out? Are you pursuing holiness? Because if you're not, why should any of them? Paul's letter to Titus has three main functions. This is a, if you ever have a chance to get your hands on what's known as the, the visual word, uh, it can be purchased through Crossway. This is not an endorsement to, of Crossway, but they do produce it. And, but the task of, the task that Paul gives to Titus is to instruct Titus to order the things within the church. Chapter one is primarily that, establishing for the church elders and pastors. As we get into chapter 2, we see how the church members themselves should conduct their lives under the authority and under the leadership of Christ as the head and under the, the leadership of the elders. And then chapter 3 is all about how, is our, how are our lives, how is our personal holiness being carried over into our completion of the Great Commission. If you want to think of it this way in, in regards to a, 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 the next illustration, um, Christ is the head of the church. Pastors reflect the head of the church by being the leaders, the shepherds, what's also known as the overseers. We're going to see those words used interchangeably here in this text. Then comes the members of the church who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit equally and have a vital role within the church. It's not just for the elders and the leaders and the pastors. And then chapter 3 would be how we fulfill the great commission in pursuing holiness and making disciples of all nations. With that being said, let's go to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to back up to verse 1. We don't need to say much more about chapter 1. I'll make some uh, distinctions here in just a moment. But back in verse 1, just to, for the sake of the, the flow of Paul's letter. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I'm going to pause right there. We know that Titus is being instructed by Paul throughout the rest of the letter. But when, Paul, when Titus is reading this, 
keep in mind that just like last week, Galatians chapter 1 and 2 help us to understand that Titus was with Paul when he went to the apostles, the original apostles, in order to lay before them what it was that he was preaching. To make sure that his doctrine and his theology was lining up with the the firsthand witnesses of Christ himself. So Titus, when he hears this letter, because this letter is very unique, but yet very similar to 1 Timothy. And we're going to make some comparisons here in just a a minute. But I hope you don't just read the first parts of letters similar to what we typically do with genealogies. It's an introduction, it's a greeting, hi, I'm so-and-so writing to so-and-so, and we tend to glaze over it. But I want you to go with me real quick in the time that we have, and see some of the important doctrines that come up just in this introduction. Justification by faith. In order, to, in order for Paul, a former Hebrew, a, a former Jew, well, back up, he is a Jew, a Jew who is so zealous for the law that he considered his mission from God to, cre- to kill and to imprison Christians. Let me say it that way. That he thought that it was God's task for him. He had been called by God to confront, combat, and to kill Christians. But yet Paul considers himself a servant of God. The only other time that we typically see that phrase, servant of God, is Old Testament, like Moses. Moses was a servant of God, the true God, not Paul's idea or perception of God. And in order for him to be considered a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, comes the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. We see his apostolic authority, the the basis, the foundation upon which the church is built. Titus doesn't just need someone's opinions to help structure this church because then it would be a matter of shoulds and shouldn'ts. This is what I think. This is what I think is best. Paul is writing to Titus to equip him with apostolic authority, to give him the set standard not upon someone's opinions but upon the grounds of Christ's confession. This is how you are to organize the church. We also see the doctrine of the deity of Christ. He's compared in verse, uh, down in verse 3. He has been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, and then refers to him again in verse 4, grace and peace from the God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He's making it very clear that there will be people, either within the church or from outside of the church, who will deny this. But you cannot, because these are musts. We also see the sovereignty of God in election. We talked about that last week. Special revelation in that it was through the word, through the knowledge of the truth. It wasn't just through general revelation that God created all things and therefore we know that he loves us and he sent his son to die for us. General revelation, general revelation in the way that God has created all things to display his, his power and, his, and his, his sovereignty can only get us so far. So God's plan was to send his son and to continue speaking through his son to give us that which we know as the gospel truth, that Jesus came as God in the flesh to die on the cross for sinners to impute to us his righteousness and take upon himself our sin. We see sanctification about how they are to grow in godliness, this knowledge and this faith of the elect which accords to godliness. We also see that the security of believers is here as well. 
Verse 3, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching of the word. All of this was because God had planned it and promised it before the ages ever began. The immutability of God, the fact that God cannot change and he cannot lie, the inerrancy and infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture, all of these things, they could go on and on. We see just in the first few verses of Titus, if we will simply set aside our tradition of wanting to skip over things that don't give us direct application. We see these things here. We draw these things out and we live by them. And we allow them to give us not arrogance, but give us confidence. Let's continue on. Actually, one more thing before I move any further. Verse 4. The defining point of why Paul is writing and how Paul is writing is found in the last line of verse 4. And in that verse, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We see the Father. We see the Son. Where's the Spirit? And grace and peace. Grace and peace are the products of the Spirit's work within the lives of believers. The whole letter that Paul addresses to Titus is built upon the Trinitarian affirmation that God is who he says he is, not who we want him to be. So let's get into verse 5, qualifications. It's really nice when writers in the, the New Testament and within Scripture itself give us clearly the purpose for why they're writing, the way it's not necessarily hidden. So verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. Thank you, Paul. Why? So that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. This was not uncommon. This was actually the, the standard practice for all New Testament established churches was for elders to be in, in, in charge. Not to be in control, but to be in charge. To be Christ's representative within the churches. Not popes. Elders. They take this from the Old Testament. First time that we see elders in the Old Testament is in Genesis, Genesis 50, when Joseph is going back to bury his father. He, he brings with him the elders. We see it in Exodus as well, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 17 or so, Exodus uh, not too long after that they were brought out of the land of Egypt. He also calls the elders together to give them the instructions that they are supposed to do and supposed to, to conduct themselves within the worship of God, within the tabernacle. These are the elders. They're the decision makers. They're, they're, they're the spiritual, spiritually mature ones, the leaders within the different communities. They would be considered leadership, assembled to give structure and to give support to God's people. In the New Testament, in Acts, Chapter 11 in the church of Antioch in Jerusalem, we see the elders were established. The elders were already in place. Acts chapter 14, Acts 20, all different places. This is the standard practice. The importance of these elders and the influence that they had within these churches cannot be overstated. Verse 5, I have set you 
I've, sent, I've left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That phrase, put what remained into order, comes from a Greek word that we get the word orthodontist from. Literally, to make straight that which is crooked. Or to give shape to that which is unshaped. Now we know that this is a very new church because of this task that Paul has given to Titus. They don't have these elders in place already, even though it was a common practice for established churches to have them. So he's given this charge to Titus, a very similar charge that he gave to Timothy as well. Both people are are also considered by Paul to be a true child in the faith, possibly direct converts of Paul's ministry. And Titus, in fact, if you read in 2 Corinthians in several places, Titus seems to, be that Paul, seems to be the guy that Paul calls on whenever there's a difficult situation that needs to be handled. But he says this about what they're supposed to be. Verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach, there it is again, must, be, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but, that word but is the contrast, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke to those who contradict it. The role of these elders, introduced here to Titus, even though he knew, he knew and he had seen, established for him other churches that had elders, understood the importance, understood the influence of elders, being men who led in these communities, spiritually mature, not recent converts, and we'll see the contrast between what Timothy says, because we cannot look at Titus and not look at Timothy, although we do need to understand that those two guys probably didn't have a chance to compare notes. Different places, similar time, similar structure, but we need to ask the question, how does Titus understand this, what's being written to him? Words matter. Elder, overseer, pastor, in the New Testament, these, these words are all used interchangeably. They all have different assigned meanings. They all have different assigned roles and responsibilities, but they are all used interchangeably within the New Testament. An elder would be considered a mature, a spiritually mature man with upright character, above reproach, not even a question, living his life in such a way to, as to avoid suspicion of evil. Overseer, their task, uh, they, their, their task also is uh, drawn from the Old Testament when there are different councils, different, uh, different gatherings, different assemblies that overseers were put in charge to protect, to, to, assign ta- to assign the task to protect and to make sure that the task was being fulfilled by whatever assembly was under their charge, under their responsibility to lead, to protect, to make sure that everything is being executed the way that it's supposed to. And then lastly, pastor, a caretaker, a shepherd. The actual word for pastor that we get out of the scriptures is another word for shepherd. Tending to the flock, caring for the flock. 
we have a, a special, special verse in, verses in 1 Peter chapter 5 where all three of these words are used to describe the exact same person. And they're used interchangeably. Verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What Paul wrote to Timothy about elders, overseers, pastors, is very similar. If you have a Bible that you're able to write or mark in, or consider uh, examining both lists and see what, what lines up, see what's a little bit more unique. First Timothy chapter 3, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Very similar. They cannot be overlooked from each other, but there are specific things written to Titus that he needs to address because of his situation. There are, three there are three categories, three categories of these qualifications. First one would be relational in terms of his family, in terms of his marriage. Second one is personal, his character. And last one is his doctrine, doctrinal. Or if you're from the UK, doctrinal. So let's look at these characteristics, look at these qualifications. First and foremost, in both cases, verse 6 as well as in verse 7. Above reproach. Above reproach. Any leader, anyone who aspires to be a leader within the church must be a person that can be considered dependable, trustworthy, and honorable. But it's interesting. There's a Greek word that actually occurs right before all of these attributes in verse 6. Is the word translated if. These are things that do not disqualify single or people or men without families. If. Look here. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. That does not mean that only married men are able to be pastors. Only married men are qualified to lead churches. If that were the case, Paul himself is disqualified. Rip Titus out, throw it away. More so than that, the apostolic authority he has to proclaim this comes from who? Jesus Christ. He was not married. He had no children. What this means then is to be the husband of one wife is that he is a one-woman man. But there is faithfulness that there is integrity within the marriage. Also, with regards to the family, 
His children are believers. His children are faithful, meaning that these are older children who claim to be believers, who claim to have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Because right now, at this moment, in order to be a pastor, I would be disqualified because my children are not believers. I hope that they will be one day. I love getting to hear Molly sing in Christ alone. And my prayer is that one day, Molly, Emma, and Charlotte would hear the call to salvation and repent of their sins. But that's not, those are not the children dealt with here. These are older children who claim it's difficult to, to, to ascertain, but through the Greek, it's a, it's these, these are children who claim to be believers. And if they claim to be believers, then their lives must reflect the conduct of true believers, not open to the charge of debauchery. We don't use the words like debauchery very often, but we have to understand that these are children who reflect faith in their conduct, not open to do whatever it is that pleases them and simply use their Christian card as a get-out-of-sin-free but these are also children who are being properly instructed by the parents, by the, by the father and the mother, to fear the Lord, to submit to authority, and to embrace correction, not to see it as condemnation. So there's the relational aspect of it. Verse 7, he uses a different word, though, to introduce these next qualifications for the personal and for the doctrinal. He uses the word day, which is for, translation, for an overseer. Earlier, if you're married, stay faithful. If you have children and they claim to be believers, this is how they should act. This is how their lives should reflect that. But if you're not, it's okay. If you're not married, if you don't have children who claim to be believers, continue to pray for them, continue to live, to live as an example for them. But to get into verse 7, these are qualifications of all pastors. Married, single, children, God's steward, steward actually meaning a manager, a good manager of what God has entrusted to him, must be above reproach. There it is again. Above reproach. There's a proverb, I can't remember if it's Proverbs 22 or 24, and it says, the righteous, or the wicked run when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are bold as lions. That's my anti-jogging verse that I use to not have to run. But when the wicked run when no one is chasing them, it's the, the sign of a guilty conscience, always looking over your shoulder for what's, for what's coming. A righteous, a, a person who is above reproach doesn't have to do that. They can live as bold as lions knowing, I'm following Christ. My life is to reflect Christ. When I do fall, and we all do, when we do sin, and we all do, we're falling forward in our submission to Christ, repenting of sin, especially taking necessary account for what sins need to be addressed to certain people. Elders were also used in the, in the confession of sin. But he says that above reproach, not arrogant. These are, these are terms that we don't have to go into the Greek words to understand these because they are so plainly obvious. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Many people would say, and I've heard it recently when Jenny and I were talking, I heard many people say that all life is about is pursuing your happiness. And if it makes you happy, then you should pursue that. That doesn't work. 
That doesn't work in a realistic world. It doesn't work in a world with standards. You have to throw out any kind of measure of what is good and what makes people happy in order to justify that. And in fact, you have to steal from my worldview, the Christian worldview, to make anything in your life good enough to make you happy. Because if it's all about happiness, then I can make this verse say whatever I want it to. I just won't be violent towards children. But I'm genetically predisposed to being violent towards women. And it makes me happy. We laugh because it makes us a little uneasy, but that's the logical conclusion. If it makes you happy, then do it. I have a genetic predisposition. I was born this way to be an alcoholic and to drive while I'm intoxicated. Therefore, I should be allowed to do it. What do we do with those cases of it makes other people happy, so you should be allowed to do it? We have to throw out all kinds of standards. And when we, when we say that life is important and life should be cherished, but if it makes you happy to get an abortion, you should. Again, you have to steal from my worldview in order to justify doing what makes you happy. It's not to be arrogant, not to be quick-tempered, not to be drunker, not to be violent, not to be greedy for gain, because honestly, people, there are people who get into ministry simply for the status or for the wealth. There is great wealth, especially within a prospering nation like America, to where I want to be famous, I want to be well-liked, I want to have a lot of money, I'll start a megachurch, or I'll start a church somewhere and have no standards. The measure of a church is not in its width, but in its depth. Not how far wide it can expand across regions. How deep does it go into the Word of God, into doctrine and theology, and how is it lived out in the lives of people pursuing holiness? It doesn't stop there. Those are the negatives. He gives us counter-positives. He says, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, all these things come through simple surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit and being in God's Word. Lastly, the doctrinal qualifications. He must hold firm to the Word of God, as it is taught, able to give instruction in sound doctrine. But in order to give instruction in sound doctrine, he has to be sound in his doctrine first. I don't want to go to a tutor. I tell our teenagers all the time, don't go to a tutor in math if they are failing math worse than you are. That is illogical. Don't go to an upperclassman who has taken the class three times before. Find somebody who knows what they're talking about. Grow in your understanding of things. In fact, church, please pray for our students. They are told constantly, and sometimes we tell them as well as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, uncles, just church members, we tell them that it is so important for them to get an education, to do things like chemistry, to do things like biology, to do things like physics, to do all these difficult things. And yet when it comes to the spiritual side, go read John 3.16. Because the standard that churches set, the standard that families set for their kids when it comes to spiritual matters is far lower than the standard that is set for them in academics or in athletics. Raise the bar and see your students, see a generation of people grow in holiness. The heart can only go as high in worship as it can go as deep in theology. 
but able to rebuke those who contradict it. Although pastors and church leaders must meet these requirements, and these are musts, these are not shoulds or needs to, they must meet these requirements to lead biblical churches, and churches ought to hold these things up as the biblical requirements for pastors. These characteristics are not uniquely reserved for pastors and church leaders only. Not arrogant, a good steward of what God's given to you. Not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, not hospi- or hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled. All of these things are not reserved only for church leaders, and you get off scot-free. The practical side of holiness is, as we take these aspects and we group them into some categories, do you live a life that is respectable, above reproach? Do you live your life beyond even the appearance of evil? And I'm not talking about, I'm not where I should be, I, I, I'm, I'm just not as great as I, as, I, as I need to be or what God's calling to me to be. This is a practical assumption to lay all the comparisons aside and simply ask the question, am I living my life in such a way that I am not under the condemnation of my own sin? Am I running when no one is chasing me? Are you faithful? Are you in private who you are in public? In your marriage? In your family? At work? At school? Wherever it is that you find yourself on a daily basis, are you the same person outside of these walls that you claim to be while you are here? Are you humble? Do you put others ahead of yourself? Have this mind which is in yours in Christ Jesus in that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking upon himself the form of a servant. Why? Because he didn't consider himself more important than those he came to serve and to save. Are you hospitable? Are you welcoming to outsiders? Are you welcoming to those who differ in opinion from you? Now, there is a level in which we need to to understand the balance here. We don't want a whole bunch of internet warriors who claim things, but yet they have no interaction with people. But are you welcoming? Are you able to, to conduct yourself in a winsome way? Are you teachable? Do you desire to grow from others beyond what you think you know or are capable of doing? Are you a teachable person? Because in order for this person, in order for a pastor to, to lead effectively, he's got to be led as well. Are you immovable? Are you firm in what the scriptures teach? And are you able to share that? And are you dependable? Can others follow your example? Paul wrote in the letter of 1 Corinthians to those believers. If you're having trouble following Christ, follow me. It's not a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of if you're having a hard time following what Jesus was all about, follow me because I'm going to do everything that I can to follow him. So that once you realize and once you get past the basics of once you get out of the toddler stage of just barely being able to get up off, off the ground and be able to walk on your own, then follow Christ. Paul is not the standard. Peter is not the standard. Moses is not the standard, it is Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So rather than getting frustrated or becoming apathetic about what God in his holiness, in his goodness, has limited us to, to not see it as a limit in the negative sense, but to understand that all Christians ought to pursue these qualifications as markers of personal holiness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we take these things to heart. I pray that we would understand and be surrendered to the good call that you have placed upon our lives to understand, Lord, that were it not for grace, that we live in a culture, that Christians have lived in cultures filled with, inundated with sin and corruption. It is not new to our day and age. But instead, by your goodness, you call us to repent of our sins, to put our faith and our trust in you and in you alone for the salvation of our souls so we may have relationship with you, so we may truly know you and understand who you are and what you, what you are like and what you are to us. Lord, give us clarity. I pray that we would take these things, I pray that we would take, this, take your word and read it for ourselves. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who have given their lives to give us your word, who did not have your word. Martin Luther said that a layman armed with scripture has more authority than any pope without it. Lord, I pray that we would see the goodness of your word, that you came to live and to die in our place because we never could. We were following our own desires, enemies of yours, seeking our own sinful passions, loving the darkness even though the light has come. But yet, out of your good, holy plan, you have called us into marvelous light, to shine that light, to be salt and light to others. And you do that through the church. You do that through local churches who hold to biblical principles and priorities. I pray that we would be people who rest in that, who take comfort in that, and who are energized by that to share with others. If there's anyone here who needs to repent of their sins and put their trust in you and in you alone, I pray that they would not wait, that they would not hesitate, but that they would hear your word proclaimed, run to your goodness, and be transformed for your, for your glory. I pray this in no other name than in the name through which those things happen, as in the name of Jesus. It's in your name that I pray, Lord. And all God's people said, amen.